Waves in the Finiverse. If you're managing money for others, then it's easier to justify this during the bull market where all your peers are also doing the same trade. Versus now, it, it really speaks to, to your conviction to this asset class specifically. In the US, people are very focused on building more the infrastructure side versus in Asia, it's still very application-based. It also filtered out or washed out a lot of the players who are not serious about building something sustainable in the business. Right now, it's actually a really good time to deploy, look at the primary market opportunities, the venture side. Welcome to Waves in the Finiverse. I'm Walter Jennings, the host of a podcast brought to you by Finiverse. We're talking with the wave makers that are creating ripples, waves, and tsunamis across finance, crypto, fintech, Web3, and beyond. Listen weekly to hear the change makers talk firsthand about their experiences in this dynamic industry. Well, today's guest was born in China, lived in the U.S., and has recently relocated from Hong Kong to Singapore. A global citizen and self-proclaimed maths geek, she's uh, the, a sought-after speaker with deep understanding of traditional finance combined with expertise in how institutions and macro markets work. She's managing partner at a company that has tripled its value in the past year to over $3 billion. Welcome to the Finiverse from Amber Group. It's Annabelle Huang. Annabelle, I understand in 2017, you bought your first Ether for $20. Do you still have that? <laughs> that is a great question, since it is all fungible. So I wouldn't say the specific ones I bought, you know, that I still have, but uh, I would say I still hold a, a large portion of um, my digital asset holdings in Ethereum, uh, just being... Um, I, I guess got my first start within the crypto industry through the Ethereum community. So that's always dear to my heart. And um, there's so much more room for where this can be. Uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about it later. So yeah, always a, a long-term hodler in this sense. Yeah, hodl, H-O-D-L, hold on for dear life. Uh, <laughs> always trying to explain the acronym. Now, we, talking of Ethereum, um, where will the merge take Ethereum considering the market feels a, quit, a bit bearish at the moment? I would say people perhaps has priced in a lot of optimism um, going to the merge, uh, given that it's it was finally happening after a long time. But let's not forget that it is just the first step of many on the roadmap for Ethereum to become uh, where eventually where it wants to be. Proof of state-based um, or scalable blockchain that can be the world's decentralized computer. Um, and, and that's very powerful. Uh, I think Merge has set the stage, but there's a lot to come. So, um, and, and I think a lot of the recent price headwinds are due to more macro-driven events. So I, I think the short-term price movement doesn't necessarily mean anything, whether or not it is successful or not. Uh, from a technology point of view, um, at, at least the merge is is fully complete, and now Ethereum is running on the proof of stake consensus. And Annabelle, for those who don't know, um, can you explain why the merge took place, and do you see other cryptos following suit? The merge, um, really, from a technical standpoint, is um, the merge 
of the beacon chain that's already running on proof of stake and the actual execution layer of Ethereum that was previously still um, under proof of work and then emerged into the ETH 2.0, the current chain now. So um, I think, you know, from a technical perspective, that is what happened. And there was a lot of anticipation going to it. And we were all very glad that it w- we were able to successfully execute that. And there's no um, disruption in the network. Everything is running as intended. And then I think it is also significant because there are a lot of the changes in the roles all the participants within the Ethereum community before there was a large miner community that are now becoming either being retired or, or you becoming um, a validator. And then there is also new roles being introduced to build a propulsor, which will eventually pave the way for more uh, for tank sharding or et cetera. There's a lot of technical terms, but essentially uh, pave the ways for, for Ethereum to become uh, more powerful. Great. So um, overall, a successful merge, uh, well-managed without any significant hiccups, correct? Yes, yes. Fantastic. Well, look, um, we're seeing, um, you mentioned some of the macroeconomic news or the macroeconomic factors impacting the markets. Is bad news good news for crypto or does it uh, follow the similar volatility to traditional markets? Um, it is also a question that's very topical. I would say I think it's interesting because w- within the crypto community, there are uh, there are a lot of us that came from the traditional finance space, but there's also a lot who didn't. Um, and before, even just say four or five years ago, it still feels like a pretty small bubble. Uh, what's happening within the crypto markets is quite isolated and um, not as correlated to the traditional market as it is today. So I think um, it is a good sign uh, because it means a lot of the sophisticated or institutional money capital has been allocated in space and more and more people from different backgrounds are now uh, in crypto as well. Uh, But I think it also created a higher correlation to traditional asset classes, especially given the macro events are impacting um, the dollar liquidity that's available in the market. And Bitcoin, Ethereum, the majors being highly liquid market that's open to trading 24-7. So I think in the short term, um, it behaves um, very similarly to the risk assets. But in the long term, I think there's still a lot of systematic differences, especially uh, if you look at the disruptive technology side, what else can be built uh, within the crypto world? There could be new asset classes uh, introduced, even NFTs um, in, in form of NFTs, and that could be quite different than you know how FX or equities market work. But in the short term, it's still a sort of dollar liquidity issue or dollar rates issue. So it does move highly in tandem. Very good. Well, thank you for that. And how do you find your institutional investors uh, responding to their crypto holdings at the moment, trying to build up institutional interest had been a mantra a year ago, but uh, are you getting the institutional buy-in and engagement at the moment? It's still relative. So relative to maybe uh, where it was over the last cycle, there is increasingly a lot more participants on the institutional side. But relative to their their size in the traditional market, it's still a very, very small fraction and very, very small portion of the active players that are, I would say, 
uh, also sophisticated in, in crypto. But these players, they come in big sizes. A lot of the hedge funds, HFT shops or high frequency trading shops, um, they are the the top traders in, in crypto just because the sort of the sheer amount of capital they can mobilize and, and the tech infrastructure they can mobilize. Um, so that's very interesting to see. And I don't see them going away. They're here in the long term. I think that's one part of maybe treating crypto more as a tradable or investable asset class. On the other hand, there's also the corporates, the family offices, the, the high net worth individual space that also come in sizes similar to the institutions. And I think for them, it's more of an alternative investment. They also hold a long-term view and are willing to really hold uh, their crypto assets. And I think at the end of the day, it comes down to conviction. Um, there are a lot of the players who are happy to buy Bitcoin when it's 60K. So if if you do have conviction and now you're buying at a third of the price, isn't, isn't it better? But I, I think there, I see a difference of the institutions who are managing external LP money versus managing maybe their own um, money, own capital, will will see it a little differently. If you're managing uh, money for others, then it's easier to justify this during the bull market where all your peers are also doing the same trade. Versus now, it, it really speaks to, to your conviction to this asset class specifically. It is not the same sentiment now versus maybe a year ago. But I think people who are still active are the true believers and they have the ability to really size up um, going forward. Despite the um, volatility of the crypto prices and the um, shifts in their values, we're still seeing uptick in new investors. Where are these new investors coming from and, and which segments of the market are showing the most promise? I would say the primary market is actually quite active. There are a lot of the funds that recently raised new funds, a lot of first-time funds raising the market as well. And um, there, there are billions of dollars being raised and they need to deploy. So I think we're seeing still maybe compared to the peak of the bear, uh, bull market, it's not as active, uh, but they're still actively investing and there are capital being deployed to the teams that are putting their heads down, building in this bear market. So I think there's still a lot of activity there. And uh, overall, the valuation has come down to maybe it's better for the market to a level that uh, makes a lot more sense now. And uh, I think it also filtered out or washed out a lot of the players who are not serious about building something sustainable in the business. So I think um, right now is actually a really good time to uh, deploy, look at the primary market opportunities, the venture side, which is also why I think Ember uh, recently closed our own ecosystem fund as well, and it, it was oversubscribed. There's still a lot of interest coming from the uh, more maybe traditional institutions who prefer to have their exposure in crypto through maybe funds like this, as opposed to buying Bitcoin and having to figure out how to custody it and looking at the mark-to-market every day in, in, in that sense. So I, I do see a lot of opportunities there. And let's talk about crypto cycles. How do you spot them and how do you predict when the next one will start? I wish I could uh, answer this question <laughs> that <laughs> I would be a um, so-called macro trader and crypto. I, I think it is... Hard to predict, but we do say history repeats itself, but there's also the saying, you know, past indication or past performance doesn't, um, it's not indicative of future. 
So, but if if we took at more empirical data, then you can see there are cycles within crypto similar to the dollar funding cycles within the macro world as well. Within crypto, I think that that cycle is just much shorter, maybe th- every three to four years. Uh, before it was very correlated to the having schedule, and it still is playing out. So I think maybe that's a lot of people's mental model. I think this time around, it is very interesting because it also coincided with the the more macro cycles. Uh, so we need to see maybe where the dollar funding cycle is going, um, how that's going to impact crypto market specifically. So I think this time around, we're being actually a bit more careful, a bit more prudent, uh, making sure that we have more than enough runway to not just last one year, two year, but maybe even longer. Um, it's hard to say where we go from now. So all you can do is be uh, make sure that you are well prepared. But I, I think it's it's always easy to, to tell that you're in a new market dynamic after the fact. Uh, so I think there's no dispute that we're in um, another crypto winter, but this time I think it, it could be especially challenging. Now, Annabelle, Amber Group is described as a startup, yet you have processed more than $1 trillion worth of crypto transactions cumulatively, and you manage over $5 billion in digital assets. Do you still have uh, a startup mentality at Amber, or has that transitioned? I like to think that we still have the day one mentality. Um, and I think that's actually quite important uh, for us to stay nimble, to, for us to grow, uh, but also be able to adjust to different markets quickly. And I think that's key to survival in a fast evolving industry like crypto. We, we have grown quite a bit, but I would say the teams from day one, I think we still share the same long-term vision into what we what we really want to build Amber into, uh, a true category-defining leader in the digital asset space. And we're still far away from that because this industry is still far away from where it really could be. So I think staying humble, staying nimble, staying having that day one mentality is extremely important. And I'd like to think that we, we still have that. And I think we, we keep that in mind when, when we hire, when we build our teams as well. Um, we still have a very flat structure, not a very hierarchical structure, uh, which is we're very result-driven. And we, we like the people that can just drive things through, whatever it takes. And I think that should be the right mindset to have uh, in this industry and in this business. And I, I think people naturally gravitate towards what they do best. Uh, we, uh, we have uh, people that are excellent managers at the firm or people who work very well on their own. And you have to be able to have a very diverse group of people to be able to cover very diverse um, counterparties in the industry. Even though as we grow, we, we still want to maintain that culture of that st- startup mentality. And, and we stress that a lot internally. Um, sometimes, unfortunately, not everyone does have that mindset. So eventually, you know, just shows it's not a good fit with us. 
Um, and I think we, we, we've been through some of those as well. So we, we always take notes and learn our lessons along the way. Yeah, I find that the skill set needed to uh, thrive in centralized finance doesn't always cross over to uh, decentralized and to the new digital assets. It's a, um, a fast-paced arena. Now, you are backed by a number of industry players, including Coinbase, uh, and yet you've got a product that called Whalefin, or that might be kind of a competitor to Coinbase. How are the two similar and different? So Whalefin, the rationale behind it, or the, the idea really came about during the pandemic when we saw in front of our eyes the need to have the mobile first or the product first sort of experience for everyone. And everything is going increasingly digital. So we wanted to launch a product front end, the form of a mobile app or a web portal for our users, our clients, anywhere to easily access our service. So in that sense, it's similar to the Coinbase or to many other players in the world where our goal is to onboard more users um, to prov- provide open access to anyone who who wants to participate in, in crypto. But if you take a deeper look, I think the types of products we offer is quite different. So Coinbase being a U.S.-centric exchange, um, it has very well positioned itself there. And we've actually uh, been learning a lot from the team as well, not just from Coinbase Ventures, but also from our um, uh, from our investor Paradigm, who was co-founded by one of Coinbase's co-founder, Fred. So I think we have a long history there and, and they have been incredibly helpful. But for us, the, the position of Wealthin, it's more of a wealth management platform as to a exchange where it's a trading tool uh, for you to uh, buy or sell tokens. But for us, is we want to remove a lot of that complexity in terms of how you interact uh, with different on-chain protocols, how you pick the different tokens. Um, so we, we wrap it into different wealth management products. So it could be as simple as fixed income um, products. Uh, and could be as complex as different types of structure products. But the goal is to help you look at your portfolio within the digital asset and help you navigate this and, and build your optimized portfolio um, in terms of risk and return. So it's a bit more um, hands-on um, than maybe a simple sort of exchange or trading function. And to complement this, we do have a team of relationship managers and traders who are also here to provide support around the clock because a lot of our institutional or high net worth clients uh, who are new to the space uh, requires a lot more education or handholding as opposed to maybe just giving them a tool to, to do everything themselves. So I, I think that's the key difference in terms of positioning and our goal of, of building a global uh, wealth management platform. Waves in the Finiverse, the podcast. Speaking to the people making waves in finance, fintech, crypto, Web3 and beyond. Now, Annabelle, you um, a global organization with strong um, operations in Asia. How does Asia compare and contrast to other parts of the world with uptake of digital assets, the the role of DeFi? Uh, How would you compare and contrast, say, Asia Pacific, Europe, North America? Where is it on its digitization journey? Because we 
uh, serve as quite a global client base. We're lucky to be at this vantage point where we do see what's happening on both sides. And I have to say they're quite different. So even I think from the recent conversations I've been having uh, with maybe US-based VC versus maybe APEC-based VC, you'll just see the deal flows you're seeing are, are quite different. In the US, people are very focused on building more the infrastructure side versus in Asia, it's still very application-based. So, and I, I think it makes sense, right, coming back to, to the culture or kind of participants, for the lack of a better word, I think a lot of the users in Asia are quite um, risk and profit-seeking or sort of, um, um, and a lot of them are gamers. So there's a lot of people building GameFi, SocialFi, um, and, and a lot of all of those versus in the US, it's a bit more R&D or infrastructure focused. And I think both sides are trying to cross over. Um, so you see a lot of US-based firms trying to get into the Asia market and, and vice versa. And we actually get a lot of inquiries in that sense, because uh, I think people know that we are well connected uh, on, on both sides. So it's re- very interesting to see that, see that dynamic. For me, who I guess got my start within crypto out of the US, I, I do see a lot of very talented developers, founders um, that are they're building the space. Versus in Asia, if you look at DeFi, I think a, a lot of the users are, are more of the yield farmers or the participants on a lot of the, the US-based projects or protocols. But I think with the rise of um, GameFi, SocialFi, we might see a lot more um, founders or innovation that comes out of Asia because of the stronger brand uh, or activity here. Now, uh, we're heading into Hong Kong FinTech Week here. And uh, what do you think some of the hot topics that will be discussed by uh, CEOs in the digital assets industry, what what should they be talking about this Hong Kong FinTech Week? I think one thing that, that's top of mind is definitely on the regulation side. Um, so Hong Kong is looking to roll out the VASP or the Virtual Asset Service Provider regime next year. And I think everybody is yearly waiting to see uh, what it will look like and what it will mean to the industry. So I think that would be topical. I think otherwise, maybe yeah, Hong Kong still being the capital hub, I think looking at how the investors are, are, are thinking about industry um, and I think zooming out, maybe not just the short term, right, but over the immediate term, what people are more excited about out of Asia specifically. I think Hong Kong still gets to see a lot of that. And yeah, and then I think ultimately it, it's still a very, very global and open community. So I don't think it's going to be Asia only. There's still going to be people looking at maybe what's happening in the U.S. and outside of there's still a lot going on in, in the Middle East now. Um, so maybe the whole MENA region or even even Europe, uh, I think people are still quite sort of fluid in terms of where they're based. Um, so I think it's always a good time to check um, what else is on around the world. Do we need more regulatory supervision in the crypto industry or is it a double-edged sword? I think at least from, from where we sit and we engage with uh, different regulators and, and multiple jurisdictions that... Uh, we want to operate in or we are already operating in. I think what we need is clarity. And I've said that for uh, many times. Um, And I think we've made some progress there. But I I think a lot of the players, Amber included, uh, we embrace 
regulatory sort of oversight to make sure that industry is going the right direction. But then we just need a bit more clarity. And it, it, I would just say it, it is a long process for us to figure out how best to service our clients in different jurisdictions, different markets. And time is of such essence in, the, in this industry, in this market, that um, maybe one or two years doesn't seem like much, but it could be half of the cycle. So I, I think that's maybe where more of our struggles are, as opposed to whether uh, debating whether regulation is, is good or bad. I think it's it's good, but we're just hoping for more clarity and for more understanding of the nuances of, of this market, of this technology, of this asset class. Annabelle, I want to ask a few questions to get to know you a little bit better. You know, as you reflect on the last 12 months, uh, you know, uh, a a month is a year in crypto and a year is a decade. <laughs> but, you know, how has your management style evolved in the last year? What's changed? What's different? That is a question I, I reflect on myself. I think I actually had to learn a lot of difficult lessons. And I think it is very challenging to manage a multicultural team. And I, I'm not saying I'm doing it well, but I've certainly come a long way. I think in the beginning, um, I think given my background, um, I was more comfortable dealing with numbers on the computer screen as dealing with people in general. But at the end of the day, it's always a relationship business, whether it is to your clients, your investors, and ultimately your employees uh, or people that you work with for 20 hours a day. So I think for myself, uh, I, I have learn to understand uh, the different culture, different personalities, and all the emotions that are involved in, uh, in, in management. It's, it's not, there's no formula, it's not black and white. Yeah, I, I would say I had to learn a lot of lessons the hard way. But I think now I would say my style is hiring uh, or making sure I build a team that's diverse enough, but we share enough sort of common personality where I, I am not the type that micromanages. I, I'm here to empower my team to do what they do best. The people on my team could be more senior than me, more experienced than me, and we just have a lot of mutual respect. And I'm here to be their resource, help them push things through to, to empower them, really. So I, I don't really see my role as manager, but perhaps uh, as a leader sometimes as we go through some exercise or go through some uh, difficulties together or challenges together more often than not actually as a empower or enabler uh, I guess that's the right word um, and then I think one thing that you learn is that maybe when you're small when you're 20 people you try to do everything yourself and that's sustainable but if you really want to grow into something that's scalable that is size then I guess you know I, I need to spend a lot more time making sure that everybody on the team is performing. That's how we really scale the business. Um, so I, I think that's also a quite an interesting journey for, for everybody, not just myself, to figure out a lot about ourselves, really, and, and um, about each other along the startup journey. We're in a volatile industry, the digital assets industry, and how do you counsel younger professionals to... Um, have that stick to that's required to get through tough times? What's the kind of, uh, how do you hodl an employee? One good thing about, um, I guess, the nature of this business, the fact that it's highly volatile, there's a lot of turnover, um, is that I think in the beginning, it filters out a lot of 
people who uh, perhaps are still lacking in conviction, then they probably wouldn't even make the move in the first place because it is still highly risky. So given that, then uh, among the rest, uh, sadly, we still sometimes lose people. You have to accept that and learn that that's okay. Uh, but I think more importantly, how to continue to support and incentivize the people that want to stick around and making sure that um, they still have enough room to grow, enough resources to support what they want to do, even though the market could be extremely challenging. Um, so I think here at Ember, because we our business um, is quite expansive, we uh, don't just do one thing. We, we organically grew into offering a lot of different types of services and really facing very diverse um, group of clients. Um, so I think that really helped us uh, to retain different types of talents in different market conditions. Let me ask you a football question. Amber is the official partner with Chelsea FC and with uh, Atletico Madrid. Um, if the two teams were to play each other, who do you think would win? Oh boy, I am failing at the, <laughs> at the sports question here. Uh, I would have to come clean that I didn't watch uh, football much uh, previously. And now, obviously, I'm the biggest fan for these two clubs and all their players. If they do play against each other, I guess it's similar uh, to saying them that may the best men or the best team win. Um, no hard feelings there. Um, and I think, you know, it, it is interesting because that could happen realistically in the World Cup later, uh, as later this year, as, they, as maybe the players will play against each other. But I, I think for us, it, it's quite an interesting cross-industry, you know, from the sports and entertainment business, from crypto finance, the two seemingly kind of super um, irrelevant uh, industries are able to to combine because of new things are happening or new innovations are coming to the industry, uh, coming to crypto, coming to um, the blockchain technology, um, then the players, the, the football clubs, all the sports clubs are looking to NFTs. They are interested. They want to find new ways to engage their fans um, or to create more value. That's how the marriage came about. And um, and because of that, I guess I, I get to watch a bit more football going forward as well. Final two questions, just to Annabelle, if you could um, take any song with you into the Finiverse and hear that, what song would uh, would you bring with you? That is a great question. Um, I want to see what everybody else is bringing so I can complement it. So we make sure we have a good diversity. Um, Here's another question. If you're having trouble trouble with that, you you're coming out of an airport and you're going to the car rental, they've upgraded you, what car would get you really excited to get to have a weekend to drive in? Well, I'm embarrassed to admit that I actually don't have a driver's license. I don't know how to drive. So it has to be one of the auto driving cars. So Tesla or whoever is making it, I'm rooting for you. (laughs) Fantastic. Annabelle, I really appreciate the time to talk today. So thank you so much. This has been Waves in the Finiverse. Why not hit the subscribe or follow button so you never miss an episode? If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please leave us a review and a five-star rating. Thanks for listening.